0: some bodies create more inflammation with a given injury than others. That's one of the things that you don't have a, an opportunity to, to address. There are some bodies whose cartilage integrity is just less. And so they have throughout their whole body, and it's not clear why. And so the things that you can do are keeping the, the, keeping the knees strong. Now, there's also, there's also too much, right? Uh, squatting. Five hundred fifty pounds. Maybe that's not so good because you're pushing those carbon really hard against each other. So everything in moderation, right?
1: Uh, I'll cu- I'll cut back then. I won't I won't do five hundred and fifty pounds right. anymore. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Did I hear any more? <laughs> All right, Joe, thank you so much for uh, joining me on the podcast. You know, this is special to me. Uh, the audience will know this is special for me because you're a special person in my life. I sort of grew up with you. So they're going to have a little background on that. Speaking of where we grew up and those kinds of things, talk a little bit about that. What got you into going to medical school and then being an orthopedic doctor? And I'll, I'll let you talk in a second because I... Uh, People are going to really be excited about what you have to say here. Part of the ecosystem of where we grew up in the Bronx is looking back is less than optimal. Uh, Certainly, I have no regrets. I I think it made me the man who I am. But I think when people look at me and they say, you know, Gio, uh, my God, you would grow up in that environment? You're this successful? How did that happen? I always think of you. And I tell people... If you think I'm successful, there's got some guy here, my best friend's growing up brother who I grew up with as well. That guy is the epitome. I looked up to him and he probably had an impact on me and with the work that I'm doing now, though it's not related to orthopedics, but it is in the healthcare practitioner realm. So go ahead, take us back. And, you know, growing up where we grew up, at what point did you say, I want to be a medical doctor and take us forward?
0: Uh, wow, Geo. That's pretty. That's uh. That, those, those are humbling words. Thank you for those beautiful words. You know, we grew up in an environment that was what it was. I think there is a, a commonality in our households, and that is a, a, a family that gave us structure and gave us lots of love and gave us high expectations. And taught us, you know, a little bit about faith and all these things together kind of created a structure that you can grow around, you know, so we all sought out people that were similar. And that's how you enter our household, not because, uh, not because of a chance, we chose each other, right? We should, like minds, kind of, kind of gravitate together. And even when you are you were a snotty-nosed uh, high schooler, I still <laughs> saw a lot in you.
1: You're sick. As for our audience, because they may think that we're about the same age, because actually you look really good. I grew up with your much younger brother. Uh, who's my best friend, and we grew up as best friends. And you, you're significantly senior than I am. I won't say by how much, but so that people have a reference and context that uh, I, I that literally I remember being in. I want to say freshman year of high school, perhaps with with Javi, your brother, and you had graduated from Harvard. And you said, guys, do you want to come with me for the weekend to Cambridge? And to me, in our environment is, first of all, it's a big deal for those that even go to college. To go to a, a prestigious school is something beyond. So that trip gave me this idea, this notion of, wow, anything is possible. Because here it is. You guys are like me and I, we grew we growing up together and I'm growing up with Javi. And here it is, his brother who... I love dearly, and I spent we spent so much time together. You graduating from such a school, so you you gave me that idea of what's possible that anything is possible. So I certainly appreciate that, and I'm clearly I fast forward talking about your undergrad, but I wanted people to know that you, you're you're a little older than me, though you look amazing.
0: It's <laughs> shave away the gray,
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Although hey. I leave, maybe I should shave everything away, and maybe That's we really could look. Good. It looks good. You give you like. You have academic heft academic heft that's right so thank you for that background about where we grew up I think that if it doesn't kill you like they say it makes you stronger I remember my mom always saying in Spanish of course you know we're mixed but we're not together in other words there's a lot of Th- you know, thugs around the neighborhood and a lot of people that are not doing good we live with them, we live amongst them but we don't live together and I think that both of our families uh, raised us up that way
0: and thugs continue to exist in the white collar world, they just live different yeah. and have different uh, <laughs>
1: exactly. The, exactly. exactly the morality means, <laughs> <you need>, right? <laughs> that's right so then you went to a very good, you went to high school. Um, and at what point did you say, I, I, yeah, I'm going to medical school? And, you know, no looking back. Uh, you know,
0: honestly, the origin was mom saying, okay, I want you to be a doctor. And I was like, okay, mommy, I, I want to be a doctor. And, you know, fortunately, I liked it. <laughs> um, when I when I was uh, getting ready to graduate from college, um, I had three potential jobs. One was as the advanced man for, for Senator Moynihan in New York City, because I had some interest in politics at the time. One is uh, the entry-level program at Goldman Sachs and investment banking, and then one was medical school. And I thought about it a lot, and I thought that what was really true to my heart and completely honest was medicine, because I, I can't lie with pain, so there's politics is out. And the, the idea of spending all my thoughts and, and, and efforts making rich people richer at that time just didn't fit well with me. I have nothing against it. I got great, awesome friends that are investment bankers just to fit with me at the time.
1: So you decided to be broke, get more student loans, not make any money for a long time, owe money, and then eventually that'll work itself out as opposed to going to investment banking and making tons of money right from the beginning.
0: Yeah, but the lifestyle wasn't good there either. The the, the lifestyle was equally bad.
1: Right. Then you went to medical school why do I think that you went to Boston University Medical School and not Columbia? I just saw Columbia on your resume and I said, wait a minute. I, I always thought it was Boston University.
0: So both are true. I, I went to BU as the only school that I get into off the wait list. And I uh, worked hard there and I met a woman that knocked my socks off and she was at, she was at Columbia. And so I applied to transfer and not, I heard nothing. Then my wife went into the speak to the director of admissions, just unannounced, and said, hey, you know, my, my, my husband is applying. Whatever. Is, is there any chance? And so he sat there and interviewed her. And that's how I got into Columbia Medical School. So my
1: wife, Dr. Ileana Vargas, she's, she's a keeper. She's a keeper. I knew she's always been special. I didn't know that part of the story. Yeah, yeah it's a great story. Amazing. I remember also you doing a uh, your residency and then leaving to Switzerland, doing a specialized kind of a fellowship. What was that about? So I did, uh, after
0: five years of residency, I did a, a, a year of fellowship in hip and knee reconstruction. Then I went to Switzerland to learn uh, newer techniques that were developing in Switzerland that revolved around preserving the muscular attachments to muscles as a means of maintaining the vascularity and therefore the healing potential. So there were certain uh, operations called osteotomies where you cut the bone and reorient it to address the underlying deformity-based origins of some hip arthritis. And It was a a wonderfully mind-opening experience on all fronts.
1: Yeah, I remember talking about, I think right around that time, I think right when you got back, I called you, I said, Joe, I have this crazy idea. I think I want to go to medical school. (laughs) And, you know, go ahead and discourage me. Tell me it's the worst idea in the world. And you were so supportive. And I remember also you said, Gio, why don't you just, you know, you know, uh, shadow me. And I shadowed you for, and that was an extraordinary experience. And I'll tell you, one of the things that I remember so clearly and and that that was so inspirational is the doctor-patient relationship you had with each patient. Your ability to see a patient and be in the moment, listen to their story. Sometimes their story had nothing to do (laughs) with their joint problem. And you were so empathetic and even hugging them that I said, wow! I, I never experienced anything like that. And then you were able to sort of get yourself together from that uh, visit, uh, and then go to the next room, examination room, and start over. Like something didn't, something special didn't just happen in the previous visit. I, I thought that was remarkable. W- what's that about? Because I I worked and shadowed and did internships with and fellowships with many, many, many physicians. I saw that only maybe twice, and you're one of them. So what is that about? Um,
0: first, touch
1: is such an important part
0: of expressing compassion. And it doesn't need much. You know, when someone is, is having a hard time dealing with a problem, just a little hand on the shoulder, that little touch makes such a profound effect on how patients are receptive to what you tell them because in the end you want to give them information that's going to help them live their life better but you have to present it in a way that's going to be received openly and and, and warmly and, and with the appropriate intent and so touches is, is that's what that's about and you know surgeons need to be able to compartmentalize and that's something that you know I learned early on because Say you do a surgery and that surgery doesn't go well. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if you really care, you're like, oh my God, that didn't go well. Oh my God, what could I have done better? And you go through your mind and you get really sad. And then the next patient still needs you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember one time I was really sad over a completion and my wife, again, my awesome wife, she's like, you can't, you can't kill yourself over this because tomorrow's patient it's not going to benefit from all of you because you're going to be lost in yourself. And yeah. so that you learn to kind of, okay, this is here and then this is here. So that when yeah. you talk about one thing to the other, that's that's medicine. I'm
1: sure that you have yeah. those
0: experiences. You have to be able to be with that person completely and then yeah. stick out to the next one, you know?
1: Yeah, I've struggled. You know, they always say you could have helped and saved thousands of patients, but you always remember the ones you lose. As you know, I deal a lot with prostate cancer. So very, you know, most of my patients do really well. And even um, prostate cancer is an opportunity for them to live even a better life because it's a wake up call. But a few don't do well. And those are the ones that they stay in me. I say, what could I have done better? And things like that. So that's typically how it goes. And then I have to compartmentalize and move on because I have the next person I have to see. You know, yeah. you're sort of forced to do that. Mm-hmm. So you, you are at a Hospital for Special Surgery, uh, HSS, here in New York. Is it still, I mean, the U.S. news just came out. I'm assuming it's still number one in New York, still number one orthopedic institution in the country. It's a pretty special place.
0: Yeah. It's a place where every, one of the things that just as unique is that every person, the, the person that cleans the garbage, the person that delivers the mail, they care about what they do. They're, like, they're really proud about what they do. And if you walk around the hospital, there's a there's a culture of hello. Like you just look somebody in the face, say good morning. Seventy percent of the time, you're gonna get a good morning back. And the other thirty percent of the time, that person's kind of hasn't transitioned from their compartmentalization, or you know, lost in their <laughs> process. You know,
1: right, right. They still, uh, you know, they're they're immersed into whatever yeah. it is that they're doing. You do primarily hips and knees currently. Correct. Yeah. You recently shared with me uh, at, at the beach where we met at uh, Long Beach, and you shared with me the following. I have my residents and my fellows do push ups in the middle of the OR. What's that about?
0: <laughs> so that, that, not, that's not quite. So
1: yeah. after surgery,
0: we get together and we talk about how the cases went, what Technic, what technical aspects could be done better? And you know, we all make small errors. So if I say to put this here, and it gets put there, that's that's an error, and I'll I'll say, "Hey, put it back here." But when that error occurs, the the learner has to accept that at a, at a deep basis, because only that's the only way that you're going to make change, and so. When someone has something that has faults, they have to do push-ups. And when, so, but this is in the office, not in But when they do push-ups, every push-up that I do, I do as well. So there's not a push-up that's done that I don't do as well. And so that way it's not
1: punishment. It's a shared penance, if you will. And we all get healthier. And do you ever do more push-ups? I mean, they're probably half your age, some of them. Do they ever, or, or more, do, they, do you ever out-push-up them, if you will? Um I get out push up every once in a while. <laughs> Cuz you're in good shape. Um you're surfing and you're doing like really youthful things that I um certainly uh, prescribe to patients as a lifestyle medicine type of doctor. Uh you're doing amazing things and you stay in really really tip-top shape. So uh it's always great to to see that. Let's go right into knees. And, and what we're trying to unpack today Joe is you know I think the numbers are somewhere like 15% of all people, men and women, will have osteoarthritis by the uh, by the time they're 60 years old or over, something along those lines. And, you know, I'm very much into this anti-aging movement, right? I was like, yeah, I don't want to have osteoarthritis. So I'm doing all kinds of things that I think is going to work to prevent. We'll see. So let's talk about knees and osteoarthritis. And we're going to uh, segue eventually into all the medical things. but. Briefly, the anatomy of the knee. My my explanation would be obviously as a non um, as a layman, as it relates to joints and an orthopedics is, well, you you have this you know thigh bone called the femur. You have the tibia on the side. You have the fibula, and there's a space in between that that has cartilage on both sides, and that helps with you know a smooth movement and things not to kind of rub with each other there's the other bone so there's the fourth bone called the patella right the kneecap and there's all sorts of ligaments uh, attaching to one uh, to to another and there's muscles around them uh, let's just keep it simple hamstrings from the back uh, back of the thigh and um the quads from the front that eventually tendons and things that that surround the knee a tell me if there's more to it than that more or less in layman's terms and b how does the knee function normally? And then why is there dysfunction at some point later on? So it's a, it's a loaded question a little bit. <laughs> but make sure that I have all the, the basics of the anatomy correct from way back in the day. So let's think of, uh,
0: of the basic function of a knee as a hint, right? So we have two surfaces. There's a certain amount of rotation that occurs. There's a certain amount of displacement that occurs. And because of those subtle displacements, there have to be anchorings which hold it together. So the what you're describing where the ligaments, those are the anchoring structures, and there's one on either side, and there's two in the middle, they're crossing or cruciate ligaments that help with anteroposterior and rotational stresses to hold this together. Now each joint is a bone with cartilage, and cartilage is 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 a wonderful, viciously designed cushion. And there are collagen that start in the bone and come out and then palisade out to create this beautiful lattice. Then, within those little microfibrils, are the cartilage cells that surround cells mm-hmm. with, a, with a a, a matrix. It's not, it's not gelatinous, it's thicker than gelatinous. And that matrix mm-hmm. is is a water is loving structure, it's a hydro photo loving. And so, the fluid that's in the goes into the cartilage, which is really cool. So when you compress the cartilage, the water literally comes out of the cartilage, just like I have a sponge, right? And so that's how replace, because the structure begins at the bone. It's very it's very hard to say, okay, why can't you just grow it? Because it's such a beautifully detailed structure. You can't just be grown. And so that structure is related to how nicely those two surfaces rub. If there's excessive motion, the rubbing isn't, isn't nice and it's so more abrasiveness. So that's the basics.
1: And we're referring to mostly osteoarthritis as opposed to rheumatoid arthritis, of course. Let me ask you, before you go there uh, and explaining osteoarthritis a little more, in my sort of layman, again, so... What do I try to accomplish with myself and even some patients that see me for well male wellness? We're trying to prevent some of these elderly situations. Certainly, you don't want to die prematurely from a heart attack or cancer, but I want to function optimally. I want to be an athlete for as long as possible, so I want to preserve my knees. So th- typically, there's different types of cartilage around the body, your nose, your ears. Those are avascular, meaning there's no circulation there. The cartilage around the knee or in the knee, there is some circulation there that is coming from the synovial fluid, so that you can now nourish the cartilage and it can you can hopefully sustain it in in good health. Is is that correct or no? The
0: cartilage itself is avascular; it's fed, as you said, by the synovial fluid. And only when it's right, the cartilage that's right the bone gets vascularity. Now, the knee has an extra piece. It's called the meniscus. The meniscus is a little C shaped cartilage that sits in between the two surfaces. So it has kind of a, a little bit of a gasket function. And that has vascularity at its and so when you're young, if a meniscus tears at the that's something that can be relatively readily paired with some healing potential. The older you get, the less that heal. And so a 20 year old that has a ligament injury with a, with a concomitant a, a, um, meniscal tear can have that meniscal tear repaired and healed. Somebody that's my age is
1: highly unlikely to have healing of the meniscus because our healing potential is just not what it was. Right. So this when you're younger, let's 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 keep you and I in that in that scenario, like. The 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 cartilage uh, of the knee and the structures of the knee is my understanding as a va- uh, that is not a vascular. that is there, there's some vascularity there, as opposed to the other cartilage from other parts of of the body nose ears and things like that, and that probably has some influence to the ability to repair after excess use. Let's just say so. This is why younger people have a better ability to heal from a knee injury than older people. Can you unpack that? For us, so vascularity around the cartilage—is there some, or in the synovial fluid, and the ability to repair or lack thereof as we get older—is that if that's the actual issue?
0: So vascularity, meaning blood supply reaching the tissues, only occurs to the level of where the bone turns into cartilage. The cartilage itself really gets very, very little uh, of blood supply. So it's fed through the synovial fluid, right? Um, the Mm
1: -hmm. knee
0: Um, the knee knee has an extra piece of cartilage called the meniscus. That's like it's like a little C-shaped piece of cartilage on either side of the knee. And that basically gives the knee some stability and support. That meniscus um has vascularity at, at its periphery, where it's attached to the outside. So when you're young, If there is an injury at that area, there is actually pretty good healing potential. So a 20-year-old that has a ligament injury and a concomitant of meniscal injury can repair that very nicely. As the decades grow, that vascularity diminishes and the healing potential markedly diminishes. and So the likelihood of a meniscal injury healing in a 60-year-old is really so small that it's almost never repaired.
1: Mm. Pause for a second. A 22-year-old who has a meniscal injury or let's say an ACL injury, are they more predisposed to osteoarthritis later on in life as opposed to the person who's never had a knee injury in their 20s? Uh, The answer to your question is yes, because
0: all injuries are cumulative and the cartilage's ability to heal is limited because you can't restore the beautiful matrix of collagen fibrils coming from the bone, that that can't be restored. So once you have that, you have a little hole and you can fill it with cartilage cells, but it's never the same. And so every injury is just one notch on the, on the timeline of that cartilage. And so, yeah, that's why people that, had, that played heavy um, college soccer or football, and had injuries today. They're they're not they're not doing so hot because that cumulative injury is real. Similarly, people that have subtle angular deformities or ways that their knees are right—if you tend to be a little bit more bowlegged—that means more of the stress is going to be seen on the inside part of the knee. So rather, rather than being fully distributed, you're kind of doing here. So you're going to wear more more rapidly. So. There are certain things that you can't change. You can't change your anatomy. You can't change your mechanics. And so what you can do best is keep those muscles strong to minimize aberrant movement. So movement occurs the way it's supposed to move. And so there is less wear that occurs on the surface.
1: You talked about now on keeping those muscles strong. As a lifestyle medicine person, I... Can go out on a limb at this point after so many years of uh, doing what I do, the work that I do, the research that I've done. And I would say, with a very high level of certainty at this point, that from an exercise perspective, strength training is the foremost thing that one can do to live longer and better and reduce the risk of almost any disease. Before our conversation today, earlier on, I said, let me just look up. PubMed, strength training, and osteoarthritis. Huge, huge. The stronger people are, and particularly the stronger their um, lower extremities, the less likelihood of them uh, experiencing osteoarthritis. Are you, do you vibe with that?
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, 100%. There's, there's inc- over the last 15 years, the amount of scientific data on the value of strength training over and above the any value of of um, endurance training is is great, and so yes, strength training should be a part of every person's regimen that wants to kind of stay together. And granted, that's not easy, right? Taking the time to go and go to the gym, or, and to, this is not easy. But good things aren't always easy. and doesn't mean it's not good for you. And you might, just because you don't do it for two weeks doesn't mean that third week won't, be, won't have value. You know, just keep coming back.
1: That's right. That's right. Uh, you know, I, if you've... Um, on Instagram... Um, I'm always, you know, I and it's not really to show off, of course, it, but it's to really motivate and inspire doing all these things that I do uh, from a weightlifting perspective. And, and, you know, I call it, it's medicine. And it's like hashtag medicine, this, you know, barbell squats, deadlifts, that's medicine. So, yeah, no, it was remarkable for me to see that, not surprisingly, but remarkable. So what's happening when somebody has osteoarthritis? Initially, a, a long time ago, I thought, well, it's just the cartilage wears out and that's it. But it's a little bit more than that. It's not that simple. So what's actually happening? Uh, what's the, to use a medical term or scientific, what's the pathophysiology of osteoarthritis?
0: Wow, there is so much involved in that that I, I won't even be able mm-hmm. to touch the surface. so much. <laughs> that's
1: a, a whole podcast it, because, by itself. Because
0: when you injure cartilage, that sets off a reaction that, that brings all kinds of different cytokines into the areas to try to create healing, but sometimes it creates inflammation. So there's just so much involved. Some bodies create more inflammation with a given injury than others. That's one of the things that you don't have an opportunity to, to address. There are some bodies whose cartilage integrity is just less, and so they have throughout their whole body, and it's not clear why. And so the things that you can do are keeping the, the, keeping the knees strong. Now, there's also, there's also too much, right? Uh, squatting 550 pounds, maybe that's not so good because you're pushing those cardio surfaces really hard against each other. So everything in moderation, right?
1: I'll, I'll, cu- I'll cut back then. I won't, I won't do 550 pounds anymore. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Did I hear any more? <laughs> Right. Yeah. So essentially is wear and tear of the cartilage where then that causes uh, a response, an inflammatory response. And then that causes the pain and discomfort and limitation of movement.
0: There, there's also another uh, a pathogenic genetic mechanism where there's just overload. So if you just kind of are running too much and you're slightly bone, you're overloading that bone and you can damage the bone... And through repeated damage of the bone, that to the, the, the damage of the cartilage. So there's lots of different mechanisms involved. So obesity is a huge risk. You know, obesity is is a magnifying glass. It's not the problem, but it's a magnifying glass on the problem. And I, I mean, when we were kids, we all took magnifying glass and did the whole thing with the sun on our skin, right? It's real. It, it's very real. Um, so yeah, that, that, there's also an aspect to, um, to people that are overweight when they were young, people that are overweight when they're young, their, their bones kind of develop differently. And the femur and the hip, for example, will rotate a little bit backwards. And so those people can walk with their feet a little bit wider apart. It also happens for people that spend a lot of time playing hockey or football because they're in that position. So how, how you lived your life affect how your bones grow. Again, you can't do anything about it, but that's one of the things that affect the subtle variations of anatomy that can lead to overload
1: and and wear. Do runners typically have a tendency of developing osteoarthritis in in the long term? Interestingly, there is a selection bias therein.
0: People that tend to develop arthritis are going to be less likely to be runners and so interestingly, good distance runners have a little bit of bowing in their knees, interestingly mm-hmm. enough, right? But they're thin and their um, their uh, muscle makeup is different. And so a person that's prone to arthritis, if that person runs, they're going to get arthritis more. But people that are prone to arthritis tend not to run. And so there's a selection bias that occurs because when they try, they hurt, so they stop.
1: All right, interesting. You know, they call it osteoarthritis, like wear and tear disease, as if you know. So, so the more physical you are, whether it's standing, running, moving, uh, kneeling, you have a higher predisposition. But man, I I've seen many people who don't do much at all, and they have, and they're, they're you know whether it's their hips or their knees are deteriorating. Yeah. So, I think there's more of a problem with not moving. Maybe that's my bias, of course. Like the less you move, the more problems you're going to have. The The interesting and
0: counterintuitive finding is that once you have arthritis, the less you move, the more rapidly it progresses. Because again, the, having strong muscles stabilizes the joint. So it does this and doesn't do this and, and have aberrant motion, which worsens the situation. The other mm-hmm. interesting issue is people walk or run differently. There are some people that are, we just hear people run. There are people that are very heavy-footed, right? A mm. heavy-footed person is not using their muscles in a way that can cushion those joints effectively. And so that person is more likely to have more stress on their joints and have sequela from that. And so in running training, they 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 teach you how you can change your stride and how you can change what part of your foot hits first in order to minimize the stress
1: on your joints. Fascinating, yeah. And the smarter runners are doing more weight-resistant and strength training now than ever before, and I think that's helpful too. And and core work, because runners typically
0: are are weak in their core, and that leads them to more running injuries up at the hip area.
1: All right. Person already has osteoarthritis, uh, that's been confirmed through an MRI at this point is that right Person arthritis confirmed by MRI he, he's a it's been confirmed you already you know they have osteoarthritis of the knee that's confirmed through an MRI is it not or is there other technology that you use So the MRI is the modality that best visualizes soft tissue and so
0: early arthritis mm-hmm. is best visualized on MRI but by the time you have arthritis some evidence is usually evident in the x ray because when you walk differently, the, the amount of calcium that's in the bone diminishes and, or, or increases if it's doing too much. So you can tell a lot in the structure of the bone
1: and x ray even without an MRI. Mm. Okay. So, through your method of evaluating whether it includes our MRI or not, and it's so expensive, right? So, here we are, you know, we, everything is so expensive. You don't want to just order MRIs. Correct. What is the non-pharmacological treatment that you would prescribe to patients at this point, if any? So it's
0: really, it's a, it's a lifestyle thing. So I, I ask patients to consider their whole life, right? How, how are they eating, right? Because a diet that is unhealthy, that's too high in fats and stuff, they're gonna, it's going to make your body more inflammatory and so you're going to feel the arthritis more, right? I know I'm, ta- I'm speaking your
1: language, you know? I, it's unbelievable. I'm hearing you. I'm like, I, I, first of all, I know th- that you do this a little bit, but it's just so unconventional to see just medical doctors talk about, you know, yeah, diet has an effect and and exercise and things like that. It's, it's remarkable.
0: Uh, my my wife is a culinary medicine expert so I, I get it at home. So again, I... <laughs> that's why
1: you guys look so amazing. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's issue number 1. Issue number 2 is and then When, you know, when you're in the, when you're in the supermarket, every time you take something off the, off the shelf, look at it, stop. Is this really good for me? Like, is this really going to help me? Is this going to fulfill just a desire? And it's okay. You know, Mm -hmm. you can fulfill some desires, but it can't, you can't be all, everything can't be animal crackers, right? Mindfulness.
1: Mindfulness. If it
0: There's an, the naturopathic doctor that once told me if it was alive last week, It's probably good, right? I don't know. I I forgot what his name was.
1: Right. I I may know who that is. I may know who that is. That's great. And then,
0: as Um, you said, keeping the legs strong, right? Thinking about how you move, how you walk. And all, all these are little things that completely influence
1: not only what you have the arthritis, but how you experience it. Let's move to, again, person, whatever age, has osteoarthritis. What injections are there? I remember back then when I worked with you, there was a, a something called Synvisc, and so that you I, I saw you inject some Synvisc into the knee. Explain what that is, and I'm sure there's other things new and improved at this point that uh, you you inject in, in knees now.
0: So synovial fluid is generally viscous, like like warm syrup, and that viscosity mm-hmm. comes from a molecule called hyaluronic acid or hyaluronan and when your knees are arthritic that fluid becomes more watery and so these visco supplementation injections are meant to restore the normal viscosity to the knee the studies on it are are actually kind of mixed and yet patients that come to me Desire this injection and feel better with the injection. Probably seventy percent of the time, as long as there's some cartilage left. And so there's, I think there's still. It's definitely in the armamentarium. And from my perspective, either that or a cortisone injection, which is simply to disinflame, therefore allowing the patient to do the physical therapy. That's what's going to really make them better, right? Modalities to
1: help pain are for me ways to help them make their stronger. They're not ends, mm. they're means to the end. And how often are those injections, whether it's the synovial fluid or the cortisone, and do they go together? So it's a one injection of synovial fluid and one injection of cortisone.
0: It's generally one or the other in most people. The more pain a patient has, the more I'm likely to recommend the cortisone to treat the pain. If the pain, the, if it, pain is less a component, then I'm more likely to recommend the gel to help them have a better um, lubrication to then do the exercises better. But sometimes you have to use both depending on the severity of the, of the symptoms. And I'm sorry, how, how often? So there's different kinds of preparations. Some are meant to be three injections. Some are meant to be just one injection. The downside of the one injection is a higher volume. And there's a, there's a certain percentage of patients that get a reaction to the injection that's going to be greater the more volume that you inject. So you can do it, it's just the likelihood of, injection goes, of an injection reaction goes up from 2% to maybe
1: 5%. If that doesn't work, is the next step that the patient should consider is a knee replacement? And let me say this about knee replacements and hip replacements. Naturally, I am less is more from that perspective. That's just some of my bias and my firm belief in lifestyle medicine and things like that. I have to say... From a surgical perspective, knee replacements are a game changer for people. If they're at a point where they're just not functional and it's just an excruciating daily pain, knee replacements and hip replacements are a game changer. The, people get their lives back. I've seen that over and over, even with my brother, as you know, who had it done at HSS. So <laughs> I'm I'm a huge fan. So... After you try some of the injections, is there anything there or is it possibly surgery?
0: First, you, I have to I have to set this back. You said you're a non-interventionalist, right? But you are not necessarily the, the average, right? There are some people that have, you know, a little bit of pain. They're like, okay, I need a replacement. And you have to say, no, no. Actually, you're a bad candidate for somebody that has a little arthritis and has a significant emotional reaction to that arthritis, that's a bad candidate because they they have all the factors that are gonna lead them to have a bad result from the surgery. Because the surgery is a very mm. profound inflammatory creating uh inflammation creating process. And so you have to stop that process first. And so there are many people that I have to talk out of having surgery because they're not they're not in the right frame of mind. You know, some think of, oh I can never do this, I can do this, I can never do this. But they can. They just have to realize they can't. And so that's part of what we have
1: to do. Mm, Interesting.
0: However, once you are truly bone Mm. on bone, what you said is correct. It's a really
1: awesome ability that we have to make people better. To regain function is unbelievable. What's the material? So, what are you, this I really have no idea actually. So, what do you remove? So, you already spoke about the anatomy of the knee. What is actually removed? And what material is used, metal or what have you, to Replace the tissue that you had. So there's two questions: what material you use, and what is it that you replace. And then the third question is: what's the wear and tear of the knee replacements in this day and age? By when? By when will they have to? You have to revisit and replace it again.
0: The, a knee replacement is basically
1: a replacement of the surface. So basically, the surface of the bone is shaved off,
0: and then a new surface is applied. That surface is generally metal or some type of metal variant and plastic. The metal is the, the part that rugs is generally either cobalt chrome or a ceramicized metal and it's called the oxinium. And these are, these are materials that are designed to be, have excellent wear characteristics. And they're matched with
1: a very highly engineered plastic that's also very wear resistant. And where is that placed? Is that placed on top of the tibia and and, uh, the the two ends or one of the ends?
0: The femur has the metal part. The tibia has the plastic part, but it's attached to the bone with another metal part. And there's two ways that you can attach the implants to the bone, either with cement. That's the most common technique that's been used for 30 years. But in the last few years, there's been newer non-cemented techniques where the bone actually grows into the implant that seems to be having really good results. But,
1: um, you know, the, the jury is still out on that. Mm. And so when is there a revisit? At what point? Well, let me, let's me let take it a step back. What kind of normalcy in terms of lifestyle can they have after a knee replacement? Can they run marathons? Can they squat barbells? What can they do and not do after a knee replacement? In general, you really shouldn't run with a knee replacement because these implants are not
0: designed for that. It's metal, and metal has specific mechanical qualities. And if you run on it, eventually that metal can break. So you have to be cognizant of that. So the goal is to restore most aspects of life that, with all due respect, a fifty to sixty to seventy year old is going to participate in. It. So marathons, not so much. Tennis, probably. Single tennis, probably. Surfing, surfing. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I don't tell people, you shouldn't run. I say, that's not what this is designed for, right? So yeah, yeah. whether it's surfing or mountain biking, you're going to get injured one day. I know that. And I accept that risk in my head when I decide to do it, because that gives me so much pleasure. So if somebody, somebody mm-hmm. tells me, doc, you know, I had a new replacement and I'm running and it gives me so much pleasure that I'm willing to accept that risk. I'm
1: not going to say no to them. You know, we're, we're all adults. We can all make decisions. Yeah, well-informed decisions. And under normal circumstances, when, if at all, does that need to be replaced? It's pretty, it's pretty seldom. There,
0: there are some times where the materials turn out not well and those have to be replaced. But in general, a modern knee replacement has the potential of lasting in a 60-year-old, has a probably 70% chance of lasting their whole life. And if you ask why they, why they fail, Usually either it get, get fractured or it gets infected, or rarely wear. Mm-hmm. What's the infection rate like? It, it's very institution-dependent. Most infection rates are somewhere between 0.5 and 1.5 percent, somewhere in that area. So within how long? That's, that's in the fir- within the first year. Thereafter, oh, okay. Any time that you have an infection that goes into your blood, there's a risk of that going to the implant and depositing itself there. And so it's not frequent, but it does, you know, the older and more infirm you are, the less resistance your body has to fight infections that can happen.
1: Excellent. Last question. So as you can imagine, I see, I get a lot of people that ask me about stem cells and injection of stem cells. I mean, before... I don't know if it's approved in the in the U.S. You can talk about that, but I know what before it was people were traveling to you know overseas to get stem cell replacement in their knee, and they look like you know they could you know ru- you know run marathons again. Where are we with that? Uh, uh, with with regards to reg- regulatory uh, uh, laws in the U.S. and are they doing it in the U.S. And what are your thoughts? Are is it useful? Is it not? Will it? Does it replace knee replacement? Does it not?
0: Stem cells, uh, stem cell injections are part of what's being uh, performed here. There's good data that shows it has the ability to relieve pain. There is no data that shows that it extends the life of the joint. If we think to mm-hmm. beginning to the beginning, I described that beautiful lattice, the microstructure of collagen, a stem cell isn't going to replace that because it can't connect it to the bone again, right? So all you can do is put more cells there, but those cells are not going to have the connection. So it's basically like, if you've ever seen a boxing glove, right? If you take a, a, a razor blade and cut slats in the boxing glove, it's not going to work the same. It's, it's going to it's, That boxing glove is going to wear out every time you push the bag.
1: Same deal. So is the sequence potentially, you know, those like synovial fluid, drugs, cortisone, stem cells, and see how that works and for how long? Is that a proper sequence before knee replacement? Well, what's the sequence like? Stem cells in general are not covered by insurance. So they're, they're an out-of-pocket mm-hmm.
0: expense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not, they're not small. But let's say in a, in a world of uh, unlimited um, uh, economic ability, Stem cells are another piece of hope. Like, yeah, okay. Would I, would I have a stem cell injected into my knee? Maybe. Because the downside is not great. The, I wouldn't use it thinking, okay, this is going to help me run a marathon because, yeah, you might run a marathon or two.
1: But it's, it's, it's not youth. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Joe, final thoughts. I don't have any more questions and this has been great. Final thoughts and how can people find you?
0: Oh my God, Gio, what an absolute delight and honor it has been to be on with you. If I, if I, if if we could only kind of look to the future and visualize this, it's I, I am not only honored, I'm really proud, I'm so proud of you. Ah, thank you, man. So, and, um, you know, like, you're the only one that calls me Joe because you know me when I was a kid, right? Most people call me Jose. Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, so I'm Jose Rodriguez at the hospital for special surgery. Just Google that and you'll find me. It's really easy. Thank you so much, man. And and we'll stay in touch. And and maybe I um, yeah, I, I do I think I want to try surfing, but I need to start at a low level. So maybe we'll meet up in Long Beach or something and try it out. Sounds good. <laughs> Thanks, man. Okay, man. Thanks. Pleasure. Much love. Tuning in to this week's episode of the Doctor Geo Podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on YouTube.com forward slash Geo Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with.